Hello, you are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. This month, you will guide us through the process of turning a detection in a, to a bona fide planet. I suit up to take a closer look at atmospheric hazes, clouds and aerosols. And Andrew will cover exoplanetary news from the last month. But le- first, let's meet our exocasters. Andrew Rushby studies planetary habitability and the early climate of Earth at NASA Ames in California. Hugh Osborne hunts for transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick in the UK. And introducing us was Hannah Wakeford, who studies the clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in DC. So now, Hugh, you want to take us through how a planet becomes a planet? Yeah, that's right. I'm going to talk a little bit about how to find and confirm a new exoplanet, and specifically transiting exoplanets, because uh, these kind of form the the bread and butter of my PhD in in finding and, and confirming these new worlds outside our solar system. So when it comes to finding them... Well, what you what you first need is a transit survey that can scan the brightnesses of thousands of star, stars at one time. So with Kepler, we were able to to study 150,000 stars. K2 can do up to about 20,000 at one time, and WASP, for example, can look at something like 10,000 at one time. Um, then what we need to do is compute all those brightnesses, so all the uh, all the stars that, that those surveys look at at one time, and turn them into a measure of the brightness of each star, each star, and we turn these these brightnesses into a um, what we call a light curve. So we um, we take the brightnesses over time and see how they vary, and this is effectively a one D array of, of of numbers. So unfortunately, we don't get to study the the individual images themselves, but we do get to look at these uh, these these sort of one D light curves, um, and it's in this we can find transiting planets. So a transiting planet if it crosses in front of its star, so between us and its parent star, then it will cause this little dip in light and we can use that to try and detect a planet. But first, actually, there's a, there's another step in there um, where we have to basically clean the light curve. So what happens is that these transit surveys, these, these um, telescopes, they in, insert their own systematics, as we call them, so their own signals into the data. So in the case of something like Kepler, um, during its K2 mission, it, it moves around. So as it uh, every six hours, it sort of rolls to, to a new position, and then Kep- Kepler's uh, thrusters fire, and it moves it back to the center, effectively. Uh, and each time these thrusters fire, the um, what we see in the light curve is we see a, a shift in flux, because each pixel, each each sort of position on the detector, on the camera, has a different sensitivity. So sometimes they'll record more brightness, and sometimes they'll record less. So we need to detrend for this. Um, and we do this by looking across all of the stars in each image and over the, like, uh, built up all, all the images. And we, um, we remove signals that are present in all of those stars, uh, effectively to, to just leave the, the pure starlight from, from one star. Um, and then we scan this with a, a variety of methods um, to look for transiting planets. But there are some imposters, so there are some things that look like transiting planets, that look like that characteristic dip in light that can be from uh, non-planetary sources. So these can be pure noise. So sometimes 
if you imagine you're just rolling a dice, you can roll six sixes in a row. And in, in, in the case of transits, that would mean you get a few data points in a row that look very, very low. So they add up to look like a dip in light. But actually, this might just be pure noise. But we make sure that this doesn't happen just using statistics. So we know that if we roll X number of dice, we expect to get X number of transit signals, X number of six sixes in a row. Um, and we make sure that we, we tune our statistics so that we never, uh, we never find effectively that, that, that imposter. Another thing it could be, as I mentioned, is, is, is the detector itself causing these, these dips in light, so the uh, systematics in the light curve. But we try to detrend these, but sometimes we're not, uh, we're not uh, perfect in that detrending. So the, the drop in light could be because of not the stars, but the detector itself. One of the main imposters in any sort of uh, transit search is eclipsing binaries. So these are two stars that um, transit each other, basically. So they, uh, they pass in front of each other, and as the two stars cross their disks, um, the amount of light from both of them combined decreases. So it looks, in some cases, very much like a transit. So these often produce a much larger dip than a transit. If you can imagine, a star is, is, tends to be much larger than a planet. In fact, that's how we characterize them in many cases. Um, so we can rule out any large dips. And also the shape of the transit looks very different. They look more V-shaped if it's, if it's a binary like this. Um, so we use the shape of the transit itself to, to rule out these imposters, these eclipsing binaries. Uh, but sometimes, in fact, we can get... Uh, this binary can be in a background sort of hidden star that's hidden in the glare of, of a brighter star that we think is causing this transit. And in those cases, it's a lot more difficult to rule out uh, these, these false positives. So there's a few other things we do to double check. So um, we first check the light curve to see if, if, the, if we can rule out the fact that the transit, the dip in light we see is from the main star. So if, if it happens in the center of where we think that star is, or whether it happens slightly offset, and this is called a centroid shift. And if it happens slightly to the left or to the right or above or below, then we think it's to due to a background star that we can't quite make out, um, but we can make out that slight shift. Another thing we do to check if it's a imposter, if it's an eclipsing binary, is to look at the uh, odd even variation. So we look at odd transits and even transits, and we see if they're any different. So in the case of an eclipsing binary, you can picture that both stars eclipse each other. And normally, in most cases, when the, when the bigger star passes in front of the smaller star and then passes behind it, it causes a different drop in light. So either a different shape or a different duration or a different depth. And we can use that to rule out these as candidates. And we can also sort of image the star with very high resolution imaging to check that it has a nearby companion. If it has another star near it, then there's a case that maybe that distant star, that, that fainter star, is actually the cause of the transit. Maybe there's something going around that that makes us think there's a transit there. Often, oftentimes there isn't, but if we can find no stars nearby, then we can rule out immediately that there's any chance of it being a, a background binary. And another thing we, we, we tend to do is we, we try and get as much information on the star as we can. So, um, so if we, for example, take the spectra of the star, this involves looking at the barcode of features on the star, then we can check to see what sort of type of star it is, how big it is. And one thing that often happens is that giant stars, so these uh, often hundreds of times larger than our sun, they can look like small sun-like stars, so main sequence stars we call them. And if we find a giant star masquerading as a smaller star, 
then we can rule out a planet almost immediately because we know that the same dip in light across a star that's much, much bigger must be from an object that itself is much, much bigger. So usually not a planet. And this is something that the Gaia mission will hopefully solve for all transit surveys in the future. In some cases, actually, this is enough to confirm that the planet is real. So this is what we call exoplanet validation. If we stop at this point and we've, we've managed to rule out all possible other sources of this being uh, false positive, as we call it, so this being an eclipsing binary or just noise itself or a detector problem, then we can say probabilistically to 99.9% that this is likely to be a planet. And this is actually how most of the Kepler planets were discovered. What we can do, though, is go one step further and confirm the planet as a bona fide planet, as we say. Um, and this is done with radial velocities. So this is done by looking at the, um, the split starlight from the, the, the star, the primary star. And we split it up into its spectra, which, um, and we, we look for the stellar barcode. So every element in the star's atmosphere imprints its own position in the color its own color so you imagine sodium lights are yellow there's a sodium line in the yellow region of our sun calcium has a has a red region hydrogen puts loads of lines in the spectra and we use those sharp spectral features uh, and we use the doppler method and in fact we combine across every single different absorption line we can find in the stellar spectra and that gives us a really precise measure of what the star's velocity is so what its doppler shift is and we can do this multiple times, generally across the or many orbits of the planet. And this tells us how the gravitational attraction between the planet and the star, how strong that is. And how strong that attraction is tells us the mass of the planet. And once we have this mass and once we have a radius, then we can tell the density of the planet as well. So this is how we confirm the majority of sort of hot Jupiters and uh, the majority of worlds before Kepler. And then there's another another stage in effectively uh, discovering a planet, and that is publishing it. So a, a planet's not truly discovered until you actually publish it. And this involves, as with all scientific work, submitting a paper to a journal and then having it peer-reviewed so it comes back with comments. Sometimes it's rejected. Uh, and then finally, after editing it and making the editor and the peer reviewer happy, you, um, you publish the paper. And that's, that's the final sort of confirmation of a planet. And then the astronomical community can read this and add it to their lists of, of exoplanets. And you may think that there's a further stage in the naming the planet, but unfortunately astronomers tend not to give any name to the planet except that of the survey. So in the case of K2, which I work in, any K2 planet will be called K21, K22, K23, those are the name of the stars, and then they get the, the designation B, C, D for... If it's a multi-planet system, if it's just a single planet system, they get called B. If it's a multi-planet system, then they get called B, C, D until the end of how many planets you have. Um, the IAU actually has plans, so the International Astron Astronomical Union has plans to name exoplanets in the future, but astronomers just won't use these. They'll keep the old method uh, and... It's going to be, I think, it's going to be very tough to change the current naming convention we have. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that we don't get to name these planets. If we had, if we had the ego of, uh, of having to name worlds after ourselves, I think there might be a few more imposters slipping through the, um, this, this strenuous vetting procedure that we have. Uh, but as it is, that, that's basically how we discover and, and published planets in uh, in the transit field anyway it's slightly different for radial velocities they kind of 
skip the first few steps and go straight to taking RVs and finding finding the planets. But uh, that's that's basically my the bread and butter of my PhD, finding these planets. Very nice. What would you say the timeline is for this process? Because uh, so a PhD in the UK is around three to four years. Does it take that long, or can you get multiple planets in that timeline? Like, what's the average you would say from beginning to end? Well, it depends on the period of the planet, I think, right? So with K2, a K2 field lasts uh, three months and you get you, you get it about two months after the, the field has been observed. Within a couple of months of that, you can find the planets and then follow-up takes maybe six months. So you're looking at about a year from when the planet is initially seen to when it's submitted for um, publication. Although in, in the case of my last paper, the, the submitting to publishing time scale can be as much as six months so um it really but if, if your planet of course is on a three-year orbit as i uh, so my one of my projects is to find these long uh sort of year or two year sort of orbit planets from k2 it's very difficult to wait for the end of a, a period by the time your phd is finished so in those cases you need uh, a, a sort of program that looks at these these stars for a long time and um and it can be it can be years between initially thinking there might be something there and, and publishing a planet. Thanks, Hugh. Uh, for this month's concept, Hannah is going to talk about clouds, hazes, and everything in between. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah, the beauty of the exoplanet field is, and I think the reason why the three of us kind of like working together, is that it spans all kinds of disciplines. So from Earth-centric studies to biology and chemistry, solar system planets, to even star formation disks and at a stretch galaxy p formation and positions in the galaxy. I have read every kind of scenario and stretch of this in, in some proposals, so it really spans absolutely everything. So getting definitions which can cross all of those boundaries can be very difficult. And clouds, hazes, aerosols, soot, junk floating around in a gas, um, are such words that span all of these different things and mean very different things to each of the communities. Um, and we're at the stage where it's getting a little bit confusing. So to either help or hinder that, I'm going to go through a few of them uh, and kind of see what kind of definitions there are and, and what we can do uh, as exoplanet people to kind of help this. So as we know from looking at our own solar system, all of the planets with a stable atmosphere have some form of liquid and or solid particles suspended in that atmosphere. Um, but where they come from and how they form can be very, very different. Uh, some examples are, and I'm sure we've all used this at some point or another, is the word haze, which we used to describe weather. In many cases, you would be correct in using that term because the strict definition of the word haze is an, an obscuration to horizontal visibility caused by particles when, they are, when the relative humidity is below 80% or the dew point depression is more than five degrees on the earth. Ridiculous definition, I love it, it's so specific though. This is only relative to earth. But in solar system studies, the word haze is often used to describe photochemically generated species. So things that are caused by the sun's UV rays, they interact with the particles and then cause chemical reactions. And these are called photochemically generated solids, which um, are, are formed in the atmospheres of places like Titan. And more recently, the discovery of these hazes, these photochemically generated species in Pluto's atmosphere. 
And in the exoplanet literature, we have another definition for the word haze. It's been used to describe photochemically generated species, but there's no physical 100% evidence of that. And haze has been used to even describe a type of particle size, so small particles which form these obscurations in the atmospheres have been called hazes because they're slightly thinner than some some larger particles. So the word haze has been used in a huge number of ways. Now under the definition of the word haze on Earth, we actually have it under a different umbrella. It's under the overall umbrella of what is called an aerosol. Now, an aerosol is defined actually as any form of suspended particle in the atmosphere. So any particle that is suspended in the atmosphere is called an aerosol. So this includes cloud droplets, but it can also be a number of different things like uplift from the surface, so desert sands become aerosols when they're in the air, outgassing from volcanoes, chemical reactions, photochemistry, biochemical, even particles which result from infall of meteorites are called aerosols. And even in some points, the suspended bacteria, so living organisms suspended in the air, are called aerosols. So aerosol can be used in any of the, and all of these situations as a descriptor. And it doesn't really offer the specificity I think we're looking for. Um, and it hasn't, quite caught on in the exoplanet literature just yet because in earth literature and solar system literature there are what are called primary secondary and tertiary aerosols which are the descriptions that you use for the different formations so if you split up the things that i just listed into different categories are they from the surface are they from the top down in the atmosphere so caused by the sun or are they just things that you would expect in the atmosphere themselves give you three different types of aerosols they could be and we have such little information on exoplanet atmospheres and aerosols that it would be very difficult to make those distinctions clearly where the other communities that read the papers would uh, be able to understand them. So the final one that I want to talk about is the word clouds. Now these do have a strict formation-based definition. That is a liquid or solid particle that condenses in the planetary atmosphere from background gas. So that at an appropriate temperature or pressure, cloud particles essentially can sublimate or evaporate to form the gas again. So they're not a permanent state. So on Earth, these are liquid water clouds. On Titan, they would be liquid methane clouds. And on Mars, you get solid CO2 ices, which form the clouds. So they can be liquids or solids in the atmosphere, depending on what temperature and pressure you're looking at. Now, on many exoplanets that have been observed so far, around 50% are shown to have something optically thick in the atmosphere blocking the light, which we assume to be these clouds formed via condensation processes. Um, and thus far, the types of planets that we're looking at, these clouds are going to be made of more extreme species, such as uh, liquid clouds of magnesium silicates, which we would find as rocks or commonly sand here on Earth, uh, or even more extreme liquid iron, or aluminium oxides, which are like those that make up rubies and sapphires here on Earth. But uh, the definition of a cloud assumes that these are forming via condensation. So they are saturating in the gas phase. There's so much of them in the gas phase. The essential humidity of whichever species that is here on Earth, humidity defines a water, 
but on another planet it could be anything so if the humidity of a certain species uh, reaches saturation it will form a cloud and it's possibly even rains so is that a good definition that we can use? Can we guarantee that all of the opacities that we're seeing in exoplanet atmospheres are formed via condensation? The answer, unfortunately, is no. We're not going to be able to fully understand these processes. But this is, for these types of planets that we're looking at, the most likely scenario. Um, so I just, I'm not sure if that clears anything up whatsoever, to be honest. I'm not sure if we are able to give more strict definitions given such a variety of information across all of these different things. Um, now cloud means something completely different to somebody studying star formation. It's a mixture of gases and dust. It's not just the dust which is floating in that gas. Um, but what we have come across in the literature is this discrepancy between the definitions, which kind of alienates each of the fields from each other. And I know there's a lot of exoplanet people, solar system people who have been really trying to clear this up. Sarah Hurst um, gave a really good talk on this at Exoclimes over the summer, which you can find online uh, and we'll put a link up for it. But she gave her own definitions from the point of view of a solar system person. You know, how does the solar system view these different definitions? Um, and I think the conclusion that really kind of I agree with and, and she came to as well is that we want people to understand what it is we're talking about. So even if you think that this is a general definition understood by everybody, when you're writing it, when you're trying to convey your science, define what context you're using that in. Define that your cloud is talking about solid or liquid particles suspended in the atmosphere that's fine you can use that because then it's understood in that context and possibly as we get more information uh, we can become more specific and we can and we can talk about the particle sizes or the composition or the opacity or the potential even formation process which occurred to form that optically thick thing that is blocking our light um, and then that will allow us through defining the words that we're using to translate our work across different fields, uh, like all scientific work should be. Um, it should be transferable. And I understand I'm quite guilty of not doing this, so I will be better, I promise, uh, and more careful in the future to when I'm talking about what I always talk about, which is clouds formed via condensation processes, that I actually define that every time I do that. So. Clouds, hazes, all under the umbrella of aerosols are just suspended particles in an atmosphere with different little nuances which separate them from each other. Thanks, Hannah. That was fascinating. To be honest, I've kind of always taken those terms for granted. I guess I come from more of a solar system background and actually hearing it laid out like that makes a lot of sense. Um, but it seems to me that in that case, Titan has both hazes and clouds. It does, yeah. So Titan's also got surface aerosols. So it's haze. So on Titan, beautifully, haze is generally used to define photochemically generated species, which is top of the atmosphere, kind of down. There's aerosols, which would be defined as primary aerosols, which are uplifted reactions from the surface. 
And then you also have clouds which are formed via this condensation process. So one of the things that they use to really define the difference between the, the condensation process and the more aerosols or hazes is that condensation is a reversible reaction. Like it is in our atmosphere, like it is in our atmosphere, you know, we have this water cycle. Condensation uh, can be turned back into the gas phase without any chemical reactions having happened. And hazes and aerosols generally require a chemical reaction which changes the form, and that can either be a permanent change. Uh, or it will be a reversible change via a different chemical reaction. So it's not immediately a reversible state. So I think that's one of the ways that people are also separating these. So you mentioned all these states, and I I, I just don't... How much do we know about exoplanet atmospheres to be able to tell between these states, right? Because it seems like more of a theoretical thing at the moment, but maybe you can enlighten me on that. So actually, for the bigger hydrogen helium dominated atmospheres like that of Jupiter or but for these very hot ones so these hot Jupiters which are very close to the star they have mostly hydrogen helium in their atmosphere we can actually assume quite well uh, from you're right from theoretical models that actually it's too hot for photochemical reactions to be taking place so the only way you can form an opacity source because there's no surface is to condense from the gas phase into a cloud. So for these very hot ones, um, these very hot hydrogen helium dominated atmospheres, and these can be down to Neptune mass atmospheres if they're hot enough, those we can actually very reasonably assume are just formed via condensation. Now, once you hit uh, what is called the COCH4 transition in the gas phase, this happens at around 1,000 Kelvin in the pressure ranges that we kind of can look at in exoplanet atmospheres. Once you hit that barrier, it's expected that photochemistry can take place and will take place very readily, um, which suggests, you know, is suggestive of some of the flat transmission spectra observations that have been made of these smaller cooler planets um, is because we think that soots are able to form now as we see in titan's atmosphere they're very long chain hydrocarbons they're very thick uh, and they block a lot of light so there's there's different transitions in the temperature gravity um, pressure phase space which allow us to to kind of understand what's going on okay great thanks hannah now we have Andrew giving us this month's exoplanet news. So there's only been one real story on the Exocast news desk this month, uh, and that's the discovery of a rocky exoplanet orbiting our nearest next door stellar neighbour, Proxima Centauri, or Proxima Centauri. Um, this is big news, and the finding has caused significant waves in the exoplanet and astrobiology community as well, uh, as the popular science press. So Prox- Proxima Centauri um, is a sorry Proxima Centauri B is a terrestrial planet with a minimum mass of around 1.3 Earth masses, orbiting in the habitable zone of its red dwarf host star. Uh, it was discovered by an international team of astronomers comprising the Pale Red Dot Project, which was led by Gilliam and Glade Escudé from Queen Mary at the University of London. 
Um, a flurry of scientific papers have since appeared on the archive preprint server, uh, covering all aspects of Proxima B, from detection to characterization to its formation and potential habitability. And you know, in, in my experience, this is a degree of community galvanization that I haven't seen before. It seemed as, as soon as the, the uh, planet was announced, there was, there was papers coming out left, right, and center. Um, and the story has made its way into the, the mainstream media too, of course. Um, so we had headlines featuring terms such as Earth-like and Earth-twin, and a couple of articles already laying out timescales for future colonization and holiday packages. Um, and as I'm, as I'm sure we all know, the, the truth is likely to be a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, so upon closer inspection, there are actually very few areas in which Proxima b is actually that similar to Earth. Um, so it's a tidally locked planet. So it's tidally locked to its much smaller and dimmer red dwarf parent star, hence the Pale Red Dot project. Uh, and it orbits the star in just 11.2 days, all the while being blasted with UV and X-rays. Um, we don't know anything about its atmosphere or its climate, and we only have a constraint on its minimum mass. Um, there are no seasons, potentially no water, and the sky would be blood red. So can this world be really be considered Earth-like? Well, one of the many papers that has appeared on, on the archive shortly after the planet's discovery was a pr preliminary assessment of Proxima B's ability to host life, written by the Virtual Planetary Laboratory team at the University of Washington. And this paper ran to over 90 pages. So uh, their findings in summary were that modelled environments can be habitable or uninhabitable at Proxima B's position in the habitable zone. So after 90 pages, in short, the planet both could and could not be habitable given the large number of potential evolutionary pathways it may have taken since its formation. And it remains impossible to make an informed assessment at this stage due to a lack of constraint on its water inventory, which seems to be the key unknown. However, even ESO's press release claimed that Proxima b was the most Earth-like exoplanet found to date, which I think was, you know, came as a bit of a surprise to many involved in the field. Uh, why would such a claim be made? Uh, what is it about this particular planet that has captured the imagination of the public and the scientific community alike, despite the fact that we really don't know whether this is a desiccated husk or a lush ocean world? I think the answer lies in Proxima's uh, proximity. <laughs> uh, at only 4.25 light years away, this planet is much closer to the Earth than any world discovered to date. Uh, and that said, even our faster spacecraft, the New Horizons probe that recently flew by the Pluto system, um, should it be directed towards Proxima Centauri, would still take about 78,000 years to reach its destination. Uh, so by astronomical standards, sure, Proxima is next door, you know, it's the closest star system to, to the Sun, but by human standards, the planet may as well be in another galaxy. However, there are rumblings from the Breakthrough Starshot project, for example, funded by the Russian billionaire Yuri Milner to send a postage stamp-sized probe to the system at 15% the speed of light, a journey of only about 30 years. So there seems, therefore, to be something tangibly reachable about this planet when compared to other candidates that we've discovered to date, despite it being nearly impossible to do so with contemporary technology. So we can almost imagine ourselves being there. Uh, and this transforms a series of, of sterile data points on a graph into a, into a place, uh, a place that we can imagine being and living. So despite knowing next to nothing about the planet, we transmute it into a stage for our own human drama, for life, for endless possibility, and ascribe it a purpose where there was none before. But I think the concern for a lot of researchers is that using language like this to describe a 
frankly very alien planet may well compromise future discoveries of much more Earth similar worlds. And given what we discovered about the diversity of exoplanets, even looking at you know our adopted family here on Exocast, um, perhaps the emphasis on leading with this Earth-like angle should be abandoned in favour of just celebrating their fascinating individual characteristics. Given the diversity of planets, we know that each one of them tends to have something interesting to talk about. And you know, uh, in in the segments that we've covered, we can often talk about a single planet for twenty odd minutes. So there's something fascinating about each planet, and just um, and, and being Earth-like might just be one of those those reasons. But nevertheless, I think this is not the last we'll hear about the planet next door. And perhaps in time, those promises of package holidays on Proxima will be realised or most likely refunded. Nice. Well, I have a question. We have Hugh here who does lots of nice statistics on numbers and, and you who does uh, astrobiology research. What is the likelihood of two Earth like planets being right next door to each other would that suggest that the galaxy is filled with them or would that just be like a statistical anomaly so that, there were there were with the kepler mission came a lot of statistical papers about how likely these sort of earth-like planets should be and and, and many of them went into like detail about where the closest earth-like exoplanet should be and i think i remember seeing uh numbers quoted of about uh, maybe 13 parsecs for the closest Earth-like exoplanet. Uh, or 13 light years, sorry. So like like six, no, five parsecs. Um, and the fact that we the fact that we have one next door, I mean, it could just be the luck of the draw, really. I mean, there's no way of knowing. It's, it's a single data point, I guess. Um, we, then maybe there isn't another one for another 10, 10 light years. Um, but it could well be that, that these planets are a bit more common than we thought. But with one one data point like Proxima, you can't really, you can't tell just yet. Well, and building on that, um, I was lucky enough to go to a SETI colloquia on the discovery of Proxima B, which we had uh, we had Gilliam um, sign in via Skype, um, and on the panel uh, was Natalie Patalia, who is the Kepler project scientist at the moment, and she described it as instead of winning the lottery, it's more like getting a six in the roll of a dice. Uh, it's it's lucky, but it's not astronomically unlucky, um, and and based on what Hugh said about occurrence rates and and distances, she. She think that that actually um, ascribed uh, a lot more significance to the discovery. If it if it turned out that, based on the Kepler statistics, it would have been extremely unlikely to find an Earth-like planet this close to the Earth. She would have been more skeptical about the discovery. Um, I don't think there's any there's any issues with the discovery itself. Uh, Hugh, you could probably and Hannah could probably more say more about that, but it seems fairly convincing to me. Um, it's just the characterization and you know hypotheses regarding ability to support life that seem a bit more speculative. Yeah, so when we're saying Earth-like within a proximity of 13 light years, we, we're talking about Earth radius, Earth density, uh, rather than anything further than that. So yes, okay, I understand, yeah, I agree with that. Well, I mean, we don't, so this is one thing that, that uh, slightly annoyed me about all the press about Proxima Sen is that we don't really know the mass, right? 1.3 Earth masses is the minimum mass it could possibly be. But there's about a 10% chance that it has a mass over three Earth masses. And we know of uh, sort of mini-Neptunes with three Earth masses, right? So so things with very deep atmospheres that are not habitable in any sort of sense of the, of, of the word that we, we know it as. So unless we get more data, it's 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 kind of... It's, it's jumping the, the, the gun a bit to say that 
this is a definitively sort of Earth-sized habitable planet. And Hugh, this minimum mass angle comes from the detection technique, right? That's the reason we can only provide a minimum mass as opposed to a, a maximum one? Yeah, that's right. So if um, if a planet orbits sort of disk on, so its orbit is um, in the... Pl well, if you hold up a piece of paper, right, uh, parallel to yourself and then draw the circle, if that was a, an orbit, you would never detect it with radial velocity. You need that to and fro. Um, and we just don't, because we don't resolve the exoplanet, we, we can't say what angle it is on between sort of exactly a face-on orbit and between edge-on. So seeing it in sort of a transiting... Uh, sort of position although we know I think now that it doesn't transit so there's been searches for it transiting and so that that kind of means that its mass has crept up a little bit and in fact I think Gaia may be able to detect um, the astro-seismic astro-seismic uh, astrometric um, sort of movement to side to side which would um, basically tell us what inclination the planet is on if it was on a very high orbit and it was much more massive than we think, then Gaia would be able to detect it. So within three or four years, we should be able to definitively say if it is like closer to Earth mass than not, um, but still a few years away, unfortunately. Right, that was brilliant. Thanks, Andrew. Um, now we have Hannah adopting a planet this week. So what, what did you choose this month? So this month I've chosen HD 80606B. So uh, HD 80606B uh, takes 111 days to orbit star. So it's not one of my hot Jupiters, but it is highly eccentric. So that means that the, the path it takes around its star looks more like a comet that we would recognize in our solar system than a planet, but it is definitely a planet. Uh, HD 80606b is almost exactly the same radius as Jupiter, but is four times as massive um, and has a big gassy atmosphere like Jupiter made mostly of hydrogen and helium. So, on this highly eccentric orbit, the furthest it gets from a star is nearly 80 million miles. Now, it sounds really, really far, but that's about midway between Venus and Earth's orbit uh, around our sun. So it's still a little bit odd. It's quite close in for this giant planet. But odder still is that its closest approach to the star is just 2.3 million miles. That's 13 times closer to the star than Mercury is to the sun. So this this planet on this orbit, because of the way Keplerian dynamics work, it's beautiful. It only spends 30 hours of its 111 days at this closest point. But during that time, it receives nearly a thousand times the amount of solar energy that it would for the rest of its orbit. Um, and it's this property which I think makes it really interesting for exoplanet studies. So if you compare it to something like engineering, if you want to see how well your system works, you shock it and see how long it takes for it to settle back to its intended state. Now, 80606b works just like this, but for planetary atmospheres. And it gives us this natural laboratory for where we can see on the closest approach is the equivalent to shocking it. It's the equivalent to hitting it with a hammer. And by, uh, because you know, you've got this increased solar flux literally slamming into the atmosphere. 
And then what you can see is you can monitor it over the rest of its orbit and see how long it takes that atmosphere to settle back into what we call an equilibrium state from this shocking process. So it's a really cool way of looking at atmospheric dynamics that we don't generally have for any of our other solar system planets. We saw something very similar to this um, when the Shoemaker comet uh, impacted Jupiter's atmosphere. We saw this shock where the comet was impacted it over a series of hours to days, uh, and then how long it took Jupiter to reset its atmosphere to what was kind of commonly there before. And in fact, we, it was shown that it took Jupiter quite a long time to settle back and remix those particles uh, in the atmosphere. So there's been uh, studies with the Spitzer Space Telescope to watch this planet over this, like a very long time period of its orbit, around this 30-hour period and then beyond, to see how quickly it settles back. Um, and more and more measurements are needed for different exoplanets that have different eccentricities so that you can see how this shock process changes with planetary mass or gravity um, or potentially even different compositions of planetary atmospheres. So I thought I'd pick uh, HD 80606b as our nice adopted eccentric planet for the family. Um, but if anybody wants to go see the host star, 80606, you just need to point your binoculars towards Ursa Major and look for a bright star between the front two legs of the Great Bear. And you can see that planet host star for yourself. It's it's a great planet, but me and HD80606, we have, we have history, and I'm not too happy with it, to be fair, because uh, I went in February this year to observe it, and it was a clear night, I could see it, in, well, I could see Ursa Major anyway. I didn't have my binoculars on me, but if I did, I could have seen it. But the telescope dome was iced shut because of a foot of snow on top of La Palma. So uh, I don't know if I should hold it against HT 0606. That's but, not uh, the planet's fault. <laughs> uh, I, I know, I know. but That's you know, the Earth's fault. I'm bitter. You should have a grudge against the Earth. Well, I do. <laughs> Inhospitable place we live in. Definitely. Yeah. You wouldn't get Early you wouldn't get snow on HD eight oh six oh six, I know that. <laughs> I don't know, it can get kinda cold out there if the atmospheric circulation is pretty quick to switch off to equilibrium. True. On that note, thank you all for joining us for this info-packed exocast. Uh, next time, I'll be answering your questions, so please send them in via Twitter at un- exo underscore cast on Facebook slash Exocast Radio or just by searching for Exocast uh, and have a listen to all of our shows to get some ideas at www.exocast.org or find us on iTunes. Also, Andrew is going to uncover the almost alien climate and atmosphere of the early Earth and consider what bearing this has on exoplanet research. And he will also adopt a new planet into our growing family of misfits. And then Hugh will take us through all of the latest exoplanet news. And once again, if you can't wait till next time, you can check out all of our shows on our website and on iTunes. And please do follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. Thanks very much. See you next month. Exocast.